You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week is Big Box Week. We are taking a look at Big Box retail. And when we were thinking about this a few weeks back, I said there's nobody that I want to talk to more than Stacy Mitchell. I have her on the line today. She's the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And she directs their Community Scaled Economy Initiative, They produce research and analysis and partner with a range of allies to design and implement policies that curb economic consolidation and strengthen community-rooted enterprise. Her book is Big Box Swindle, The True Cost of Mega Retailers and the Fight for America's Independent Businesses. I love the book. I love the concept. I love your TED Talk, and I'm excited to chat with you. Stacey Mitchell, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be here at ILSR. We're like huge Strong Towns fans. Oh, that's you know, so you guys, kind. <laughs> you guys come up in staff meetings all the time when we have like sort of open discussion. It often starts with, hey, I was just listening to the Strong Towns podcast and they were talking about this. So yeah, we're big fans. It's great to be, it's great to be here. That's humbling. As I was growing up, we had the mall and I have, you know, pictures of me on Santa's lap at the mall and all that stuff. Um, but we didn't have the big box store. Where did the big box store come from and how does its genesis kind of relate to the mall movement? Well, they both grew out of sprawl. I mean, they both, they both grew out of the landscape that we started to create beginning in the 1950s and 60s, this sort of auto-oriented no man's land of development. You know, if we did not so heavily favor with public policy, you know, cars and uh, that kind of scattered development model, you know, big box retailing as we know it would not exist. You know, they're very closely linked. Yeah, so we had the malls starting in the 50s and then it evolved into the idea of this like freestanding store that sold, you know, everything or a lot of the same kinds of things. Um, 1962 is the important year because that's the year that Walmart, Kmart, and Target all opened their first stores. So there was clearly something in the air that year. A portion of the book talks about the kind of subsidies that were given to the malls and how those kind of became, there was maybe some logic to them at the time as they applied the malls. I mean, that's arguable, but they certainly became uh, on steroids once they were applied to the big box stores. And the big box stores kind of use them in a in a special way that maybe the people who even were creating them for the malls hadn't anticipated. What was some of the steps in kind of going from that, we're going to have a downtown, but all enclosed to now we're going to have, you know, one big store here, one big store here kind of uh, process? Well, I think from the standpoint of the companies that developed the idea of the big box store, it's a cheaper thing to create. It's a very cheap building uh, on very cheap land, typically, or as cheap as you can get. The first Walmart store, people often go harken back to, you know, Walmart tells its history from the standpoint of Walton 5 and 10, you know, which is in downtown Bentonville, Arkansas, a little Main Street store. But that's not really, yeah, the Waltons had that store for sure. But the first Walmart is really on the outskirts. It's in a place called Rogers. Uh, it was on a big open piece of land that was fairly cheap out on a kind of major roadway, a very simple, cheaply constructed building. 
staffed by a bunch of women who were paid less than minimum wage under a weird loophole that the Waltons figured out that they could use to pay people. So it was all there from the beginning. And I think from the standpoint of those companies that developed the stores, you know, these were, they were going after mall revenues as well as downtown revenues. And that this was a really cheap way to push a lot of uh, cheap goods out there and to have uh, a format that not only would carry clothing, which is most of what a mall is, most of a mall is, is apparel, but big box stores would carry everything else uh, in, in one place. So that was the evolution from their standpoint. From the standpoint of towns, you know, it's part of our system, part of the pressure that local officials feel um, is that they've got to show job creation, job creation, job creation, and they want to be at those ribbon cuttings. And unfortunately, you know, when you develop a mall or a big box store, it looks like you're creating economic expansion. I mean, you have a vacant piece of land. Now there's a building on it. There's a bunch of people employed there. You've created jobs. You've created tax revenue. Um, so you imagine. And so it becomes something that you can tout and that you're eager for and that you're very, it's very easy for Walmart or Target or whoever to come in and say, hey, we're going to create these jobs for you. We're going to create this tax revenue for you. Uh, how about you give us a tax break? How about you help us buy down the cost of the land? Um, how about you fund this? And that's a carrot that a lot of local officials have found very hard to resist. Uh, Walmart, through its big development years, was asking for and often receiving subsidies on one out of every three stores that it built. It's received over a billion dollars from local governments to fund its expansion. And of course, you know, local hardware store, local bicycle dealer. I mean, those guys never get a dime of this sort of public money. And we've also discovered, you know, in the end that the jobs and the tax revenue that we thought we were going to get is completely not the case at all. It's, just, it's the opposite. We lose more jobs than we gain. When we start talking at Strong Towns about big box stores, one of the pushbacks that I always get from people is that, well, Chuck, it's a, it's a market preference. The free market system has spoken and has shown a clear preference for this kind of development. Clearly, they're more successful, they're more competitive than the Mon Pa retailer. How is that starting from a, a false premise? Yeah, starting from a false premise in two really big ways. One is the government help. And there's a lot of government help that has gone to these companies. The direct subsidies in the billions of dollars to help fund their, their expansion. Uh, there are also a lot of tax loopholes. Walmart, for example, Target, they've been able to get out of paying income taxes in about half the states. Uh, which again, if you're a small business, you can't do that. You're paying income taxes on 100% of your business earnings. Guess what? Your biggest competitors are not. There's a particular kind of loophole at the, at the state level that exists in about half the states. Same thing with federal taxes. You know, if you, uh, have a mom and pop grocery store, uh, do you have a, you know, a shell company in Luxembourg where you're shifting your profits so that you don't have to pay federal taxes? Of course not, but all these big guys do. So the result is that local businesses pay a higher tax rate, both at the state and federal level, than their biggest competitors. You know, we've got all the ways in which we subsidize the car and how car dependent these kinds of developments are, down to uh, the way that our zoning laws work, as, as you know well. I mean, lots of towns have basically uh, zoned in such a way that the only kind of development that is allowed is a sort of big box model of like large scale shopping center, large scale big box store development along these big roads, you're not actually allowed to build the kinds of projects that local businesses can find space in and can actually compete in. So government has stepped in and really put its 
thumb on the scales in a big way and has heavily favored big box retailers against small businesses. The other big way that that idea of the sort of free market, this is what consumers want, that kind of thinking, the other big way that that goes wrong is that it ignores the huge hidden costs that we all pay for these for these stores. Those costs come in many forms. You know, one of the most you know sort of measurable is the fact that a huge number of their workers rely on public assistance because they don't make enough to get by. You know, uh, Walmart, for example, is a hugely profitable company, but most of the people who work there are on food stamps, public uh, health insurance, and so on uh, because their wages are so low. That's a price that you know everybody pays whether you shop there or not. It doesn't show up on the price tag. And so, again, uh, it's a kind of hidden subsidy. And you can look at the environmental destruction. You can look at the impact that it has on the quality of life in our communities and our, our civic and social well-being. So there's a whole bunch of hidden costs that are not really factored into the price. And therefore, it's not really a, um, you know, a fair a playing field. If I'm a state, let's just take my state, I'm the state of Minnesota, and, and I'm you know, projecting out my budget for the next 12 months, I'm getting a healthy amount of income tax, which is coming from you know, the people who work at these places. I'm getting a healthy amount of sales tax, which the more transactions take place, the better off I'm doing. But I'm not getting property tax. I'm not getting you know, any of the kind of the local taxes tied directly to the, the wealth of the community. I'm, I'm, a, I'm more of a transactional type of entity. And so at the end of the day, if I can pump up the size of the stores, pump up the number of transactions, pump up the basically like gross GDP statistics, that's good for my next 12 months budget forecast in a way that cities don't directly benefit from. Here's what I'm trying to understand. And, and this is what I really don't quite get. I think it's very clear when we take a long view that this type of development just destroys cities financially. But the state is, you know, like you said, has created all of these loopholes and subsidies and programs that are benefiting these people. I, I think it's too simplistic almost to say, you know, they're, they're just have better lobbyists, <laughs> although that's part of it. I think the incentives for the state maybe are misaligned with what the incentives are for local governments. Does that, does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm not sure that that's my assessment. Um, I'd like to hear your assessment. Yeah, I think the short-termism is definitely true, but I think it's true on the part of cities as well as states. So that's a huge thing, sense of like, yeah, I, you know, I want to show that I'm doing development, I'm creating jobs, and so I'm just going to say yes to anything that comes my way, even if what I'm approving there's a ton of research and maybe even I know better as, a, as an elected official that this thing is going to destroy more jobs in the long term than it's going to create, that it's going to cost more in public services than it's going to generate in tax revenue. Those things are true of big box retail and yet they keep, you know, they've just been approved um, to such a huge extent. I'm not sure that there's a real huge difference between state and local on that. In a lot of ways, I think the local officials have driven and been much more aggressive proponents of this kind of development. In my observation, states are a little bit more removed. You know, I think the state tax loopholes that we were talking about, it is a question of the lobbyists and of the fact that it's not something that your average citizen is, is really engaged in or knowledgeable about, or that a small business owner 
is even aware that is going on. They're not aware that they're not able to take advantage of something that means that they're paying a higher tax rate than their competitor, and they're not organized in any way to have a voice, even if they are. And so in that black box of lawmaking, it's very easy for the lobbyists to have an even bigger hand than they do normally. So I think that's you know, part of what goes on there. But cities, you know, between the potential property tax revenue from these things, which they look at as an add-on, without really thinking, oh, in 10 years, I'm going to lose all this revenue from my downtown, or this thing is going to require so much in the way of police services and road maintenance because of the nature of the development, that it's, I'm going to pay for it all. You know, I'm going to lose all that tax revenue. It's just going to go right out the door and higher services costs. They don't really do that math. Um, it doesn't seem to really, you know, very often. And then that little bit of sales tax, you know, particularly, I mean, it's a lot more in places like California and Phoenix where they, uh, excuse me, Arizona, where cities do rely a lot on sales tax. It's on, ster- I mean, this kind of development is on steroids. So in New England, we're safer because there generally isn't a local sales tax. And so uh, cities are a little bit more sensible about this. But in places like California and Arizona, I mean, they just can't get enough of it because they just look at that sales tax dollar figure. And often it means that they're attracting dollars that are now being spent in a neighboring town at some other mall. That mall is going to go dark. They're going to have the shiny new development that everyone is going to come to. And then in a few years, some other town is going to, in the region is going to build the latest and greatest big box power center. And then that's going to undermine. So there's also this lack of like regional cooperation that feeds the whole thing in the sense of like, I'm going to get what I can right now in the short term as an elected official. And, you know, I'm not going to pay attention to the huge economic costs regionally of this over the long term. To me, when I look at the local government side, it's completely irrational. It makes, it it really makes no sense unless you're, you know, Pavlov's dog just like drooling over the next treat, but not thinking anywhere beyond next week. I'm trying to discern whether or not at the state level, it's somewhat rational. In other words, if the state government has a policy that puts out the local shoe store, it's not like people buy less shoes. The guy who runs a local shoe store now becomes the shoe salesman at the big box store and they're drawing a salary. So the state gets essentially the same amount of sales tax revenue, the same amount of income tax revenue, maybe even a little bit more if we can induce people to spend more. So if we were just looking like strictly at state policy, maybe it's rational for them to favor because of, because of, you know, where they get their revenue from rational for them to favor this kind of bigger top down, let's grow the GDP top line as fast as we can. Uh, because they don't, I mean, the, the state doesn't have to police this. The state doesn't have to provide fire protection. The state doesn't put in the road and the sewer and the water and have all those liabilities. So I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out, and this is, this has been something like brewing in my mind for a while. Do we just have very different incentives in place? Like the state government has one set of rules that they've set up that really benefits them. But at the local government level, we're kind of induced to do really dumb, crazy things uh, because of this system. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No, I do. And I, I think in a big picture way, there is an element of that that's going on. I do think the part about cities are sort of induced to do really stupid things is definitely true because – the position that cities are put in in terms of their limited powers of raising money, the kinds of tax streams that they have to rely on and so on um, is very constrained. And the lack of 
support in most states for broader regional cooperation around planning issues also really undermines their authority. Yeah, they can control theoretically what goes on in their borders, but what happens outside their borders has such a huge impact on them that in effect they're between a rock and a hard place a lot of times. And that's in a lot of ways the fault of the state. So that part I agree with. And it may also be true that the incentives for other kinds of development outside of retail are the revenue incentives from the state's perspective, say, green light everything. But with retail, I, I still think that there's a tremendous amount of irrationality at the state level because, you know, on the income front, just to take that piece of it, you know, the, the rise, the growth of big box retail, which, you know, just to be clear, these are companies over the last 25, 30 years have just come to dominate a huge portion. You know, but you go back to the 1980s, local independent retailers had, you know, more than half of all retail sales. Their share is now down to about 23%. And you've got a company like Walmart, which captures one out of every $10 Americans spend on everything, one out of every $4 we spend on groceries. And in 40 metro areas, one out of every $2 we spend on groceries. So just to kind of give a sense of the economic power of that company in particular, and then you add in Target and the others, huge, huge, hugely powerful. As those companies have grown to have that kind of dominance in our economy, they have undercut two key pillars of the American middle class. One are small business owners, and we've lost hundreds of thousands of those businesses that typically, you know, supported a family, uh, were anchors in their, in their communities, local economy. And then the other pillar of the middle class that they've heavily affected are manufacturing jobs, often unionized manufacturing jobs that again also paid, you know, family supporting kinds of wages. You know, Walmart and Target have come in and they've sent those jobs obviously overseas, and they've played a huge direct role in doing that. Uh, they've destroyed a lot of those small business livelihoods. In, in their place, what they have given us are jobs making an average of $9 an hour in their stores. You know, there's a huge part of the inequality story in this country is really you can lay it right at the feet of these companies. And that not only because they're not only retailers, but because they're the gateway through which consumers go to reach everything that's manufactured, they have a huge control over the nature, shape, location of manufacturing. And so for those reasons, they are really directly responsible for a growth in the number of people who are working but poor and the shrinking of the American middle class. And those things are obviously very bad for state governments in the long run, too. So I'm not sure that their rationality on this particular slice of it is any more, that they're any more rational than cities are. Though I, I think you're right in, in sort of some bigger, broader ways. There's something about what you're saying that rings true to me. Um, in this case, I think it's different. I, I want to get into that manufacturing part of this because one of the things that we're hearing right now in this election cycle in particular is that, you know, we have offshored a lot of jobs. We've lost our manufacturing. We need to get manufacturing back. Yet when we talk to people at the local level about, okay, you, you need to shop local, locally produced goods. They'll say, well, it's, it's more expensive. You know, my reaction to that always is, well, yeah, you know, if, if you want people to have decent wages, you're going to have to pay more for your iPod and your power drill. I mean, that's kind of the way things work out. Can you talk a little bit about how the big boxes use the kind of predatory pricing to kind of force down costs and, and how that relates to 
what our expectations then become as consumers. There's a, there's a downward cycle there that we're kind of trapped in. And I'd, I'd like you to explain that. All of these companies push manufacturers year after year to lower their costs. Which, which um, as a consumer, I love, right? Yeah. I mean, in theory, um, right. part of the way, I mean, manufacturers have done that in a number of ways. I mean, obviously, uh, sending jobs to lower wage countries is one way that they've managed to meet those price requirements of, of the big box retailers. Another way that they've managed to meet those price requirements is by dramatically cutting their R&D budgets. So, and this is hard as a consumer because the result of that is that there's not as much innovation and new product development going on as there used to be. It's hard to know what you're missing because it's missing. And so there's a way in which it's hard for us to calculate or recognize what we're giving up as consumers because of that loss. The sectors where you find that that's not true um, are sectors where there's still a really strong independent channel. So toy stores, for example, you know, independent toy stores have certainly shrunk, but they remain the outlet for innovative toy designers. You know, they're not going, they're not getting their stuff on the shelves of Target, at least certainly not right away when they come out with a new product, but they are getting all the support for independent toy retailers. So there's a way in which... Uh, the independent channel really matters for R&D. And as the big boxes have pushed manufacturers, those budgets have really been cut. The other way that manufacturers have met those lower price points is by cutting corners in the quality of their products. I mean, you used to be able to buy a pair of Levi jeans that was really sturdy and would last for a long time. But there was a point when Levi's realized we can't continue to do that and sell our product to a shrinking number of retailers we need to be on the shelves at Walmart, and in order to be on the shelves at Walmart, we have to use less rugged material, um, less rugged sewing processes, and so on. And so the result is a product that doesn't last nearly as long. So you might be paying less, but you're having to replace it more often. So it's not really clear that in the long run that what we're paying is actually significantly lower because of the degree to which we now have to throw things out and replace them. And as I said, there are all these other sort of hidden costs in terms of product development that's not happening uh, as a result of this. You know, we as consumers demand the lower prices, but the lower prices affect the jobs that people can have and the amount that they can get paid. And then that kind of fuels a demand for lower prices yet. You hear this when you watch CNBC and there's you know, unemployment's going up and they say, well, that's good for Walmart. <laughs> well, it's good for Walmart. Why? Because the less money people have, the more they're going to shop at the cheapest possible place for the cheapest possible stuff. It seems like we're, we're trapped in a cycle where the lower we make prices, the more kind of bifurcated our economy becomes. And I even see the reason I brought up the current election is, is you see this attempt to blame whoever, uh, you know, if you're on the right, there's someone to blame. If you're on the left, there's someone to blame. But really, a lot of this is just us, isn't it? I mean, us as Americans demanding something that at the end of the day is kind of irrational, right? Well, it's true. And it, 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 when we think of ourselves as actors in the economy, we think of ourselves almost exclusively as consumers. Right. Right? Right. Yep. And it's a very narrow, short-sighted way to think about yourself because your economic well-being is just as much a function of the quality of the job that you have, 
whether you're able to apply your trade in a meaningful way and get a decent wage out of it has as much or more influence on how well you're doing economically. And yet somehow we ignore that when we're out in the world. We just look, we just think of ourselves as consumers. We're sort of trained by the media and everyone else to do that. And so we're just, we focus narrowly on that low price. And the consequence of it is all of these lost job opportunities that we're all paying for, fewer opportunities for ourselves, fewer of us who are able to make a decent middle class living than, than used to be. You know, we're, we're undercutting our own well-being as we do that. And of course, the more desperate people are in terms of if you're working that $9 an hour job, it seems like the only place you can afford to shop is Walmart. And so it becomes this terrible self-reinforcing cycle. This consumer mindset was really created in the 20th century. Americans didn't used to be that way. You know, we used to have a much broader conception of ourselves. If you go back and look at the debates that used to go on in the 1930s and 40s when AMP and Woolworths and these other chains were coming to the fore, you go back and look at the debates about uh, Standard Oil and the trust busting and that whole era and earlier and earlier in, in American history. And it's fascinating because people talk about themselves as producers, as farmers, as small business owners, as workers, when they articulate what they're concerned about uh, in terms of those monopoly companies. That's how they articulate it, not as a consumer. This consumer identity was, was really invented about sometime after the war. And it's, it's a huge disservice to, to us. And I think one of the bigger picture things that we need to um, rethink as we think about who we are. That said, I do want to just go back to the policy issues because I think that if we try to solve this problem, it, it works in reverse, right? What, what, what you're saying, like if we try to solve this problem purely as consumers, we're not going to succeed. I'm a big believer in like buy local campaigns and I've been involved in helping a lot of independent business uh, alliances get started around the country and do great, you know, buy local first messaging campaigns and education on this issue to help people think about those choices and why they matter and what those hidden costs are and to really bring those to light. And those initiatives have had, you know, good success and we've measured it through surveys and other things. But there are only so far that we can go with that. There's only so much we can sort of align our collective decisions as individual consumers in such a way to get the outcomes that we want in terms of the economy, especially when we're, we're pushing uphill against all of these ways in which public policy is pushing us in the exact opposite direction towards more Walmarts and more Amazons and more consolidation. Um, and it's those things. We have to change the underlying rules of the game in such a way that the hidden costs of the big box retailers are actually forced onto their balance sheets and that the independent businesses and the, and the, and the truly community-supporting kinds of enterprises are freed up from the, the kinds of constraints and unfairness uh, that they're under to actually be able to compete and thrive because they can. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with that model. It's that we've made it impossible uh, for them to really succeed. I've mentioned the election three times and we really are, I mean, we are not a political organization and I certainly <laughs> don't have a, don't have a candidate preference in the craziness that is our national debate. But it seems to me like what you just said illuminate so much. I feel like we have two parties, one of which is saying, there's no problem here, you know, look away. And the other one saying, okay, we're going to keep the underlying game and just kind of change things at like redistribute the spoils after the, the, the bad game is run. You're really saying if you don't like the outcome of this game, you, you got to change the rules of the game. Is that a fair 
assessment of what you say? Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, we have a lot of our own history that we can draw on in doing that. We've sort of lost sight of the fact that, you know, democracy as was, as it was conceived here was both about um, dispersing political power and dispersing economic power. You know, the Boston Tea Party, when they went and dumped all that uh, tea into the harbor, it was a much, as much a protest about the power of the East India Company, this huge international trading company, uh, as it was about the power of Parliament. You I, know? I actually have a quote. And, I actually have a quote of yours because yeah. I, I I love that the British government thought you know we'll give them cheap tea with the East India Company and they'll just shut up, and the colonists you know go out and you know, say no. And here's your quote from the book: You say local self reliance and dispersed ownership. The colonists judged were essential to political freedom and democratic self-government. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, it's so true. And, and you know, that's the history. We've, we've lost sight of it at different points. You know, we had the uh, Gilded Age in the, in the late 19th century when we just had these huge monopolies formed. But we regained our footing. And in the teens and 20s and 30s, we put in place these really strong anti-monopoly policies, uh, not only in terms of, you know, sort of antitrust legislation, but also in a whole bunch of other ways. Public policy really favored small-scale enterprise and said, you know, we're going to have a, a level playing field. No matter how small a business you are, you're going to be able to compete on fair terms. Um, and we're going to make sure that the hidden costs of that kind of consolidation are acknowledged because we know in the end that our Liberty, our democracy, you know, everything that we value as citizens depends on uh, having that, that freedom from uh, centralized power. And that centralized power, you know, is not just centralized political power or government power. It's also centralized economic power. And I think you're right that the current construction of the two parties ignores that. You know, you just don't have... You don't have either party really out there with this um, kind of critique that is about local self-reliance and sort of true democracy and liberty across both the economic and the political sphere. I will say it was really nice to see um, a couple weeks ago, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, gave a really terrific speech that's worth reading uh, about growing concentration and the power of Walmart. Amazon, you know, she names a bunch of names and talks about it, not just in terms of the hidden economic costs of concentration and consumer prices and all that sort of stuff. She talks about it from the standpoint of democracy and the fact that these companies have gained control of our government and what that really means. Um, it's a wonderful speech, and I feel like there hasn't been anyone at that level of politics in decades who said what she said. And so... I'm hoping somewhere in all of this crazy political alignment, we might actually reconnect with that part of our history because it's so important right now. We had an Independence Day celebration here a couple of weeks ago. This is like the fourth or fifth year in a row. I've just looked at our local parade, which as, a, as an adult, I remember back as a kid, there being all kinds of floats and all kinds of stuff going on. I remember marching in it for different local businesses that had supported my, you know, baseball team as a kid. Our parade today was just pathetic. It had, you know, people driving their monster trucks through and lawnmowers and a couple service clubs, but all the businesses were gone. Home Depot doesn't have a float. Costco doesn't have a float. Uh, Walmart doesn't have a float. Target doesn't have a float. I was reminded again 
how much is missing in terms of the local ecosystem of businesses here. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about that. You know, we, we have the guy here who used to own the local grocery store who now is the night manager at the Walmart. And I, I know this guy. I, I grew up with him. He's a nice guy, but he used to own a business. He had a building. It was building equity. You know, he was creating wealth for himself and his family. And now, sure, he might have a retirement plan and he might have, he might be one of the, the, the handful there that has a healthcare benefit or what have you, but he's not building wealth. And he's also not buying, you know, he's a consumer now, not an investor in other, you know, the local bank, the local marketing people, the local newspaper, all that. How does the big box scene change that local ecosystem? And why is that so uh, important? When a big box retailer comes in, you might lose anywhere from 20 to 40 local businesses, depending on the particular situation. And that loss is, is uh, consequential in uh, a couple of big ways. I mean, one is this thing that you talk about in terms of the engagement of local business owners in the community, the way in which they support local causes and tend to just be engaged because their future, you know, both personally and and financially is tied up in the community in a very deep way, you lose as well um, what it means to have local decision-making. You know, if you're a business owner and um, your town is considering whether or not to cut the property tax rate, um, if you're Walmart, you're just all in favor of that because you're going to pay less property tax. Um, if you're a local business owner... It's a very different calculation. Yeah, your business is going to save some money on its taxes, but your kids go to the schools that that tax revenue funds. And so now you've got to weigh a more complicated decision. And what we see is that local business owners make decisions about their business in ways that are much more aligned with the needs of the surrounding community because they're part of the community. They rise and fall with the community in a way that a distant chain store does not. The other thing that's really important from the civic and social health kind of angle of what the rise of big box stores has done uh, to America is that local retailers tend to create the kinds of um, places that foster interaction. You know, so when you uh, shop in a neighborhood business district and you're, you know, it's set up along a public sidewalk and you're going in and out of stores, you're much more likely to get into conversations. Maybe the person that you're interacting with at the business, you know, the owner, they know you by name. You tend to run into people, your neighbors, other folks that you know. Um, and we know from studies that people have a lot more conversations when they're running their errands, standing in line at the bakery, or they bump into someone at the hardware store, or what have you. There's a lot of interaction that goes on in that kind of situation. And if you think about it, that's the stuff that's like, yeah, all those conversations seem kind of meaningless and whatever. These are a lot of acquaintances. They're not like deep friendships necessarily or whatever. But all that stuff really adds up to like the sense of community, the sense of connection. I mean, it is the, the, you know, how you run your errands is really how you experience your community to a large extent. That's all completely uprooted in the big box model. You're shopping at a large uh, store that's usually designed to draw from a regional area. You're getting there by driving alone in your car, typically, rather than being there on foot. 
researchers have followed people around in those situations. You don't tend to run into people and have those kinds of happenstance conversations. There's a lot of ways those companies have designed their spaces in order to encourage you to get in and get out. So it's just purely transactional and they're not really supporting. I mean, how many times have you stood around in the parking lot of a Target and engaged in a meaningful conversation with someone, right? It just doesn't happen in the same way. And the end result of all of this is sociologists have done these studies and they found that if you live in a community where a large share of the economy is in the hands of businesses that are locally owned, people in that community are more likely to belong to community organizations, they're more likely to go to city council meetings, they're more likely to know their neighbor, and they're actually more likely to vote than people who live in communities that are otherwise demographically the same but where the economy is dominated by one or two or three big businesses and they don't have those local economic uh, uh, structures anymore. It makes a huge difference in the, in the long run. And I think, you know, again, it's, it's this rise of big box retail is just, you know, connected to these things in ways that we don't, uh, these big picture issues about what's going on in our country that we don't even uh, necessarily recognize. One of the things that has always kind of startled me about, cities and, and the way cities approach big box stores is the kind of asymmetry of commitment. This is land within our city boundaries. We run all the utilities to it and, and beyond it then for other things. Uh, we agree to provide police protection and fire protection. And those are, those are promises that extend beyond this generation. They essentially are indefinite. Yet the big box store is a, you know, a 12 to 15 year commitment what is the impact of a dark store? Are cities starting to wake up to the risk that, you know, the, the day a big box store is built, that's essentially like the highest tax value it's ever going to have. And from that point on, there's only one direction really for it to go. And, and that's down. Is that starting to have an impact as the case studies kind of pile up and more and more cities have experienced this? There are a growing number of places that have been saying no, and there are more cities that have put in place policies, either store size caps or zoning policies, other kinds of ordinances that limit or prohibit big box development or limit or prohibit chains um, in general. There has been an uptick, I think, in the, the awareness of the costs and more places taking um, proactive steps to to protect themselves and to steer development in a different direction. I think those places still remain very much in the minority, which is unfortunate. And the growing amount of big box blight that is out there is really startling. I mean, lots of places, lots of metros that have, you know, dozens of vacant big box stores that are unlikely to be redeveloped into new retail. As you noted, the, the lifespan of those 10, 15 years, maybe, uh, before it goes dark. And often cities are, are, you know, they're, they're approving these things in the context of, you know, 30 year comprehensive plans or in the context of 30 year property tax breaks on a property that actually isn't going to be open for more than 10 or 15 years, uh, at best. Not, you know, again, it's back to sort of the long-term thinking that's really, that's really missing. And we've so overbuilt retail in this country. You know, we're now have lots of dead malls. There are more that are going bankrupt. We're actually just in the last couple of months, the 
uh, bankruptcy rate for mall properties has really shot up and is only going to get worse. And more people are shopping online. So this, you know, the amount of retail space that we actually need is going to shrink um, even as we're continuing to build more. I want to give you a chance before we're done here, because the, the book, you and I have talked about a lot of the, the bad stuff today, but your book also has a lot of positivity to it and a lot of things that are trending in the right direction and people who are pushing back and kind of positioning their cities and their neighborhoods to do better. And really, you talk about this being not even necessarily a government-led thing, but an individual-led thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I, I, I sense you have some optimism here. Can you share that optimism uh, with people? Absolutely. I mean, over the last five, six, seven years, there's been this tremendous growth of independent business alliances, and sometimes they're known as local first groups. Um, there are now about 150 of these organizations around the country, and they probably have you know, uh, 50,000 small businesses as members. Um, these are organizations and, and a lot of community um, you know, citizens, or, or ordinary folks uh, who are supporting them as well. And these organizations have been doing a lot of on-the-ground education about all of the stuff that we've been talking about today and also providing a space for independent businesses to kind of network and figure out how to be stronger together and to uh, be more effective at what they're doing. And in a lot of those cities, we're actually seeing the tide shift in the other direction. So we're seeing a return of independent bookstores. Um, we've added uh, over 500 new independent bookstores in the last five years nationwide. Um, we're seeing a big uptick in the number of neighborhood, uh, locally owned neighborhood grocers, um, which is growing partly uh, out of this new kind of like, you know, uh, neighborhood. Uh, the, food, the foodies, yeah. <laughs> urbanism thing but yeah it's also growing out of kind of the local food movement you know, it's coming from different from different angles um we've got more you know independent pet supply stores and fabric stores you know these are all small trends while there's still this big picture trend of like walmart is continuing to grow and become bigger and we've got amazon now that's really becoming aggressive and has a lot of implications for local communities so that's still happening, but there's like this growing sort of counter trend. And the big question now is, will that counter trend continue to grow and actually at some point overtake the bigger picture trend? And I'm hoping that it will. I think the key question right now is, can what is largely sort of a, a consumer-oriented movement shift into being a movement that's about changing policy and a movement that's about rebuilding community and changing how we do economic development, changing how we do planning, getting rid of these tax uh, inequities and, and subsidies, bringing back antitrust and making it about, you know, this is about democracy, changing how we think about uh, monopoly and so on. Uh, can we go in that direction? Because I think there's a huge amount of support out there. I think, you know, when I used to, uh, you know, I started working on this issue uh, right around 2000. So it's been you know, over 15 years now. And I used to go out and give talks to just, you know, communities, groups of, of people. And, you know, at that time, a lot of people didn't really exactly know what I was talking about. Like it would take them a while to kind of catch up with, oh, you know, chain retailers and, you know, but now that's not the case. People are on board. It's more a question of like, how do we deal with this? How do we change 
things in a way um, that uh, will lead us in a different direction. So the change in public opinion is there, um, and we're seeing evidence of some change in, in some communities where things really are headed in a different direction economically. The question is, can we now grow that into a movement that shifts some of these bigger forces that arrayed against our local economies? In the closing moments here, can you talk a little bit about the Institute for Local Self-Reliance? the work that you do and, and how people can get a hold of you? So ILSR is a 42-year-old national nonprofit organization. We've got a staff of about 18. We're in Minneapolis and Washington, D.C. and Portland, Maine, and we work all over the country. And we work to develop, we do research, and then we develop um, policies and tools to help communities take charge of their local economies and create a more equitable and sustainable future. Our independent business project, um, which you can, you know, if you go to our website, you can find um, just by clicking on independent business, has a bunch of resources from here's some local zoning ordinances that people have created that help support local business. Here's the history of antitrust and how we can change that. I mean, um, lots of research and analysis. You can find one of our most popular tools there is uh, something we call the key studies page, um, which is all of these studies about the economic and fiscal and community benefits of locally owned businesses and then also the costs of big box retailers as well. So it's uh, a huge compendium of all the information you need to make the case. Awesome. That website is lisr.org. And your website for the book is actually bigboxswindle.com, right? Uh, can we just do ILSR.org? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I haven't looked at the big box swindle page in like ages. I oh, think I've been there. It's good. It's good. All right. Oh, yeah. No, it's good. <laughs> Stacy Mitchell, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. You're, you're brilliant and I love your writing. And I got to say, I will admit something. I'm kind of like what Emil de Marcos is to shoes. I, I tend to be to books. When I saw your book the first time, I, I picked it up and I thought, oh, I really like this. And I started thumbing through it and I, I went and bought it. And, you know, I have this like huge stack of books I'm going through. A few months later, I was someplace and I saw your book and I thought, oh, I really have to read this. This is such, this looks like such a good book. And I bought it a second time. So <laughs> I own two copies of your book. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, now you'll have an extra one to give to the right person. That's what uh, I think. You know, I get people who stop in every now and then. And, uh, I will have to, yeah, give one away. So if you're, if you're a listener and you're driving through Brainerd and you swing by the, my office, just remind me and I'll give you my spare copy of Big Box Swindle. <laughs> Stacy Mitchell, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. Great time talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I 
I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.